0: You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Africa Rights Talk. With me today is Mr. Brian Kagoro. I'm just going to ask him to introduce himself even more and explain the nature of his work.
1: I'm Brian Tamuka Kagoro. I am a Pan Africanist. I work across the continent on uh, development governance issues. I'm a lawyer by training. I practice law in Zimbabwe as a partner at a law firm. I work mostly on advocacy and also programming that looks at development governance, which covers human rights as well as uh, socio economic issues such as inequality and state reform.
0: We will be talking about the recent events that have been taking place in Zimbabwe and we'll also be trying to find out if there are certain similarities with what's happening there and what happens in the rest of the continent. Is there an apparent nexus between political instability and the alleged human rights violations in Zimbabwe?
1: There certainly is and this arises out of three factors. The one is the beleaguered nature of the current regime its um, contested elections and therefore contested legitimacy. The second relates to the contradictions within the ruling party within ZANU-PF itself that others have referred to as uh, factionalism. And then the third relates to the active role of the military in party politics. Uh, This has Constructed, if you like, uh, a cauldron of instability within the political ecosystem, and in particular, instability within the political party system. And this informs the instinctive reaction, the fear of an ebbing power base, fear of loss of power, therefore, the instinctive resort to force and other unlawful means in order to consolidate power, hold on to power, or even illegally gain it.
0: Are you then telling us that the relationship between political instability has a direct influence on different aspects of human rights? Because if I understand correctly, what people in Zimbabwe are complaining about is the poor socioeconomic situation in Zimbabwe as a result of poor service delivery. So do you think the political instability speaks directly to these human rights violations?
1: Yeah, Services is delivered by the state. <laughs> The state in Zimbabwe has been conflated with the party, the party with the military, and also conflated with the economy. So when we say there's poor service delivery, we're in essence saying that the governing elite, uh, which has extended itself into the economy and is pervasive within the state structures, is failing to lead, is failing to govern. And any instability within that elite leads to the sort of dysfunctions that I think most Zimbabweans are referring to. These are symptoms of a much deeper crisis. And that crisis is political. And it is also economic structural right, in terms of uh, inherited. But it's in the main, a political crisis, a dysfunction with at the heart of the liberation movement. And that dysfunction of course, affects any state that has conflated itself with the ruling party.
0: Is there a relationship and continuity of human rights violations between the violations that took place in the colonial era and post-independence under the Mugabe and Mnangako regime?
1: The history of violence in Zimbabwe has been linked to the project of conquest and retention of political power, as well as conquest and uh, of the economy. Uh, and defense of privilege. Um, In the colonial era, we were violently colonized by a pioneer column of white settlers who had come from Europe with the sole intention of taking or looting natural resources uh, from our country. Their violence uh, pertained to the establishment of this colonial enterprise, commercial enterprise, and then they became an indigenous settler state, uh, which is a settler population that tried to construct itself into an indigenous population. And so they engaged, as you will know, using law, the 1929, first the order in council of 1918, and then later on 1929 and 1930, Land Apportionment Act, Industrial Conciliation Act. Uh, It was a violence that legitimated itself through law, that you had force of arms and law to justify it, but purely to achieve one end. Uh, colonial hegemony, which means colonial control of the economy, of politics, and of society. And our liberation process to try and unshackle ourselves uh, from this yoke was a violent one. We took up arms to wage an armed struggle. And it had its own violations, uh, counter violations, violations by the Rhodesian state, uh, pouring up on children, bombing refugee camps, and also taking, in some instances, you had 500,000 people put into collective villages that were called keeps. Uh, so in essence, the Rhodesian state functioned on the basis of supervision, surveillance, fraud, and force. And the post independence state uh, more or less took this manual, applied it. First, we saw the Matibeland uh, uh, situation uh, that grew first as a, as a, as a civil uh, war, but uh, degenerated into genocidal acts against civilians in what is called Bukuragundi. And if you ask yourself now that we have lived through so many years of this particular post-independence conflict, why? It was about uh, liquidation of political perceived political opponents, silencing of dissent, and constructing uh, what was then Mugabe's vision of a one-party state. And this explains the violations against students, against workers in the late 80s and in the 90s. Uh, it also explains uh, the violence against the uh, opposition led by Morgan Trangirai, and uh, now led by uh, Chamisa. The construct, uh, the military generals uh, captured this in 2002, that the office of the head of state is a straight jacket, and it will only be occupied by a person who fought in the war of liberation. So the 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 if you look at that political objective, you have to ask a deeper question that says, so what was the broader structural aim? Was it simply monopoly of power, political power? Then you realize how uh, the securocrats, the military, had extended themselves into the economy. Uh, and the coup in November 2017 confirmed something that had happened as early as 2008, of the military not only becoming partisanly involved in uh, ruling party politics, but also with an active role within the economy. So revelations about corruption, revelations about um, Uh, Extensions of certain senior military folk uh, in part of the Zimbabwean currency crisis, the Zimbabwean diamond crisis, and so on and so forth, is is part of that. So, in essence, yes, they are linked, and the continuity is around those two factors, conquest and retention of power, as well as uh, economic hegemony.
0: So, is the prevailing situation a unique phenomenon, or is it mirrored in other African states? No,
1: um, unfortunately, it's not a uniquely Zimbabwean malady uh, or malaise. Uh, we see similar situations where both where you had liberation parties and also where you didn't. The developments at the moment in Guinea-Conakry, where Alpha Conde has gone for a third term. Uh, the developments in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, in Ivory Coast, where Watara al-Hassan Watara is going for third term. Developments that we saw in Burkina Faso with kampaore before the uprisings in 2013. Uh, what we saw in Egypt before under Mbarak and under uh, uh, President Sisi. What we're seeing in Tanzania. This idea of a political elite, a self-ingratiating political elite, that extends itself using coercive arms of states that are highly personalized or at least partisan, as in partial to the ruling party, uh, has been one of the most divisive uh, aspects of African governance and also one of the biggest causes of the sort of conflicts conflicts that we see because the inevitable use of force uh, or coercive arms leads to disenfranchisement. And depending on the architecture of society, when you link this to the ethno-regional sensitivity and you link this to the class question, is that you have emerging across the continent in most countries, if you like, um, three factors and three constituencies. One is what Chilm-Bembe refers to as lumpen radicalization, because this elite is not producing sustainable economies or creating sustainable economies beyond their own looting is you have a lot of young people who are schooled, degreed with no jobs. You have a lot of people being produced out of high school who are literate with no prospects in the future. And so there is growing a literate group of discontented young people who are lumpenized by misgovernance, but who are radicalized by the their economic exclusion. Uh, the second thing that we are seeing is general discontent around where people are beginning to organize around identity politics. Uh, but perhaps also seeing the rise of social movements, uh, of people contesting uh, this governance by uh, this gerontocracies where we're governed by our, our old people. I call it an eldership as opposed to a leadership. Where we are, Zimbabwe is a classic case of naked, unhidden, non pretentious conflation of the securocracy, which is the military, the police, and the intelligence, uh, the political, the ruling political party, and the state. Elsewhere, I think there's a little bit more Phineas. People try and hide it, but behind the scenes, this sort of collusive uh, use of power uh, and safeguarding of power is happening across the continent. And also, tragically, also the human rights violations that come with it, that come with this political fragility linked to broader economic fragility, are not unique to Zimbabwe, that uh, the use What happened in the context of COVID, for example, many African governments realizing some of the illegitimate policies that they had for years embraced, uh, deployed militaries in order to deal with what was essentially a medical crisis. And this militarization of the biomedical uh, response meant that in some countries, at one time in Nigeria, more people had been killed by the police and the military than by COVID. So long and short of it, It's not unique to Zimbabwe, but Zimbabwe is is perhaps one of the most spectacular examples of what should never be allowed in a democracy.
0: Well, that's if we are to call Zimbabwe a democracy to begin with. Um, But then, um, do you think that the perpetrators of human rights violations are alive to the wrongfulness of their actions, or is there a sense of entitlement to what they have done?
1: The two are not mutually exclusive. Uh, because many of them were themselves victims of violations by Ian Smith. And you don't need to go far to track their narrative of this history of repression under the Rhodesian uh, white minority rule. And how they used the language of human rights uh, as the premise for fighting for the liberation of the country. Uh, you can go to Tongogara, uh, who was saying all we're fighting for is one man one vote, talking about universal adult suffrage uh, and the overthrow of a system that holds one race superior to another and another inferior. Uh, You go to Joshua Nkomo who says, we're fighting for equal humanity and for our land uh, and uh, for us not to be terrorized by the state and the state to be seen as a protector of its citizens, not a terror. Uh, And Joshua Nkomo himself in 19, barely uh, writes in 1986, 87, I think when he was authoring his book, which was published posthumously says, it has come to my realization rather late in life that it is possible for a country to be liberated and not free. And so he's, he's giving this contradiction where people know what they are doing is wrong, but their will to power is stronger than their will to govern. So they consciously engage in human rights violations, knowing very well that it's unconstitutional behavior, it's unlawful behavior, it's unpatriotic behavior. Uh, and they live with these inconsistencies because the benefits they accrue from using force against their own citizens, from silencing dissent, uh, are much greater than compliance with the Constitution, at least in the short term.
0: And what remedies do human rights mechanisms at regional and international level provide to address the human rights crisis in Zimbabwe?
1: Well, you know, uh, so at a regional level, we agreed norms and standards on elections. So, as far as the electoral components, these ought to have be been settled a long time ago. We also, within the Zimbabwean constitution, there are provisions that are yet to be translated into law uh, around the conduct of elections. On a human rights basis, the Zimbabwean constitution itself has very wonderful provisions on human rights that are not complied with SADAC, uh, has mechanisms, including the uh, Troika, uh, the SADAC Organ on defense, politics, and security. The African Union has the Africa governance architecture, which is the custodian uh, of the African Charter on Democracy, Elections, and Governance. We have the Peace and Security Council. Uh, You have the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, but herein is the dilemma. Although the African Union uh, has within its constitutive act the principle of non-indifference, especially in instances where there are violations of what the African Union calls shared values. Uh, the in practice, there's deference to a notion of sovereignty that almost amounts to the historical OAEU position of non-interference. And uh, because of application of two other principles, complementarity and subsidiarity. So if a matter arises in Zimbabwe, it is assumed that SADAC will be the equivalent of your first instance body to deal with the issue. And that, that issue would therefore be raised by SADAC to the African Union. And because Zimbabwe was as you, was chairing the SADAK Troika, which is the body that would have been responsible for tabling the matter before SADAK, of course it can't investigate itself, so it didn't happen. And the likelihood of the AU, uh, Peace and Security Council, it's being assisted right. with this matter, is also uh, low. So if the AU re- depends on SADAK for the tabling of a matter, relating to violations in Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe chairs or has a lot of influence in the body in SADC that has the mandates to table the issue. Uh, It it seems to me that it is, there are a lot of political decisions that need to be made. But for citizens, there's a lot of reflection on the fundamental uh, reforms that are needed uh, to SADC and to how the AU deals with, one, unconstitutional changes of government. Number two, uh, violations. And, and two, because you asked a question earlier about international uh, equivalence. In Mali, for months, citizens have been complaining about subversion of the constitution by the president. The slow, law to move in protests in which a few people were killed by government forces, and then it has resulted in a coup. Now the AU is imposing sanctions, moving full force, and the Malians are asking the simple question, Where were you when our rights were being violated in contravention of the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance, and all the other AU shared values instruments? So there is on paper a seeming solution. In reality, nothing short of social struggle in Zimbabwe and nothing short of robust and creative solidarity by those most affected by the Zimbabwean crisis, the neighbors, will move this matter up on the agenda either of the African Union, SADC, or even any other international
0: body. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because as I was just reflecting on the Zimbabwean crisis, we just realized how there is a huge movement in terms of migration of the majority of Zimbabweans going to other parts of the Sadoch region. A lot of Zimbabweans reside in South Africa, legally and illegally, but that's a question or topic for another day. And so, you know, I was just trying to think of what the implications of not intervening or of human rights mechanisms not intervening or doing something effective to curb the crisis in Zimbabwe, and that would lead to my next question of quiet diplomacy. Has quiet diplomacy perpetuated the suffering of the common Zimbabwean folk?
1: Yes and no. So let me put this in context uh, because it's a problematic within Zimbabwean political discourse. The Americans had started a process through Zidera. And the Europeans joined through their processes that resulted in what is called the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act, which, as you know, uh, has three interrelated positions, in fact, four. The first is an instruction to the representative of the United States to any financial, international financial institution, note two. Vote for debt, new debt, which is debt relief, debt scheduling, or rescheduling for Zimbabwe, which means cutting off the supply of cre- the credit credit lines for Zimbabwe. And if you think about what that means, is that the Americans dominate the World Bank, the fund. Uh, IMF, and they have also a lot of influence in the African Development Bank and elsewhere. The second related to a list of individuals that were seen as enabling the repression that was unfolding in Zimbabwe at the time. This lists the Americans and the Brits, at least some of the names have been taken off, them. but by and large this was a list of individuals. If you go back to the conflation that I talked about a lot of the individuals on that list were so sort of high-end military intelligence or uh, business Business folk were aligned to the ruling party and therefore proxies of some ruling party bigwigs in public companies and elsewhere. So their overexposure and also over-deployment within these public parties became a challenge for the third was support to civil society and the fourth was humanitarian support so the same countries that take a position on debt render humanitarian support to zimbabwe so you still get american humanitarian support and so on and so forth. why am i referencing that uh, so-called because that becomes the infamous sanctions debate is it gave mgabe a get out of jail close he was able to come to the rest of the continent in a context where we had seen the invasion of Iraq and the subsequent destruction. Also subsequently in a context where the Western nations invaded Libya, destroyed it, and there has not been any peace in Libya. So he was able to come and suggest that Zimbabwe was under attack from hot, from hostile imperial countries, and it was being attacked solely for engaging in the land reform process. And of course, Zidera does mention the land reform, and talks about restitution or, uh, or uh, of property rights. So, in a sense, quiet diplomacy became the antithesis of what was seen as megaphone diplomacy by the West. And literally, Mugabe's position, which resonated with a lot of people in the Global South, is that the West bland Bush. Uh, were behaving like colonial schoolmasters and they would not respect the sovereignty of Zimbabwe. And in between got lost the egregious human rights violations that were being committed. So we got stuck in two narratives, megaphone diplomacy, which was often uh, then linked to uh, critiques of a potential regime change, you could draw parallels about what was ha- happened in Libya, what was happening, in uh, so on and so forth. And quiet diplomacy, which tended, tragically, to either deny that there was a crisis in Zimbabwe, or when it admitted there was some challenge to minimize it to such an extent that there was no necessity for regional or international attention. And I think the two positions were untenable. Hence uh, my answer that Quiet diplomacy has in part manufactured the mess that Zimbabwe is in.
0: Let's bring the issue of quiet diplomacy closer home, taking this from the perspective where South Africa's foreign policy embodies a human rights ethos, Mm -hmm. especially after 1994. We have seen South Africa intervening at a very crucial stage in Zimbabwe's history in 2008, around about that time where the Government of National Unity was formed, which brought a certain element of stability to Zimbabwe. South Africa has often been criticized for its principle or um, strategy of quiet diplomacy. So how does that, first of all, is there actually a principle or strategy of quiet diplomacy? And if it is there... On the part of South Africa, if it's there, um, how does it affect the crisis of human rights in Zimbabwe?
1: Well, South Africa couched the term or used the term. They appropriated the term because they didn't invent it. uh, quiet diplomacy. I've given you the context, the political context. The net effect was to significantly embolden Mugabe to continue on the path he was on. Uh, and emboldens ZANU PF, and also the net
0: effect. If you add to this the debacle around the Sadak tribunal and how
1: it was dismantled, uh, mostly driven by Zimbabwe, uh, having somewhat persuaded South Africa that this was a cost to take, uh, you will realize two things: that quiet diplomacy was not quiet in its impact. Quiet diplomacy was very loud in how it enabled one party to the Zimbabwean crisis to become stronger and bought uh, it room to recover uh, politically. Uh, But it also was disastrous for South Africa, because in essence, it meant that you couldn't stop the flood of people who were fleeing persecution, political persecution, and economic hardship. So the pileup and the increase of Zimbabwean migrants in South Africa documented or undocumented, and tragically, The year that you referred to, 2008, 2009, we saw incidents of xenophobia uh, targeted, yes, at Mozambicans and other Africans, but mostly Zimbabweans who were seen. So South Africa's handling of Zimbabwe is increasingly because of the migration issue, but also because we are its largest trading partner in the region. It has become a domestic issue. The contradiction of a human rights-based foreign policy that chooses not to apply human rights in the uh, neighboring countries makes no sense at all. If South Africa were to insist on human rights standards, it doesn't even have to apply its own human rights standards. It is human rights standards as uh, contained in the Zimbabwean constitution, as contained in African Union and uh, Southwark charters, treaties, and protocols. So we have a social impact of quiet diplomacy where the economic impact of quiet diplomacy and where the political impact of the quiet diplomacy, the entrenchment of autocracy, the increased militarization post-2008 is a direct outcome of the excesses or failures uh, of that quiet diplomacy uh, 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 policy. And quiet diplomacy as a policy has no constitutional, no legal, and no logical basis.
0: So now we see a wave of social media revolutions coming up. We had the, for example, hashtag Zimbabwean Lives Matter, which stemmed from the Black Lives Matter movement. So do social media revolutions actually drive for change?
1: Yeah, I think the the best way to characterize them, Totenda, is not to call them revolutions. Uh, I think... Zimbabwe has closed all avenue of free expression of discontent. Protests often crushed with a vicious force. Articulation of discontent in media and other platforms is also crashed. What the Zimbabwean Lives Matter uh, movement uh, is characteristic of is number one, there was a global moment and momentum. Uh, of solidarity with police excesses, injustice, and systemic racism in the United States um, uh, in particular, uh, uh, but globally. And the contradictions were that our African governments rushed to issue statements of solidarity, mm, uh, condemning police brutality and violence in the United States. And yet, they were themselves high priests of the same practice against their own citizens here. So when you see Zimbabwean Lives Matter arises, as did. Uh, what it was able to do was for the first time after a very long time, was to unite around a common minimum platform of reflection and action Zimbabweans from across the political divide, across the racial and generational divide, and across the class divide. What it did is it brought people who were, as I said, different oppositional forces. It brought people in the diaspora and people who are uh, at at home uh, to speak about issues that they were unhappy about. Uh, This type of mobilization has one potential. It helps to create a national imaginary of what a different Zimbabwe, a better Zimbabwe might be. It also helps to amplify that this is not a political party agenda. It is a broad national agenda. So it's not just a professional group of opponents of the government. It is a wide range of citizens from all walks of life who are saying enough is enough uh, and who are actually questioning uh, the competence, the capacity, the ethics, integrity of those in power. Uh, to that extent, it can only be seen as the beginning of something more fundamental. Uh, there will be no substitute for organizing, for mobilization beyond the virtual uh, platform. There will be no substitute for being clear uh, about the imperatives of advocacy, ensuring that there's regional and international action on Zimbabwe. Uh, so the virtual platform uh, helps to amplify the message uh, across the globe. And it also helps to encourage and embolden those who are fighting at the core face uh, uh, of the dictatorial and autocratic uh, rule of Mr. Mnangagwa to begin to do to realize that they are not alone in this fight. It, they are in and of themselves, the hashtags, not revolutions, but like every car needs fuel, there are for very much bigger struggle for transformation in Zimbabwe.
0: Thank you. This was quite an insightful conversation we had. I really enjoyed um, speaking with you. I'd just like to ask you to give some concluding remarks, perhaps recommendations of what you think could be done to alleviate the human rights crisis that's happening in Zimbabwe and possibly in other parts of Africa as well.
1: Given the um, ecosystem of state-sanctioned violence in Zimbabwe, the police, uh, the security forces that have been, and the military, and the gendered nature of some of the violations that we're seeing—war on women's bodies—and the class dimensions—that it's largely against the poor that we're seeing these incidents of torture—and uh, the identity uh, nature, you know, the use of ethnicity, regionalism, uh, the impact of human rights violations, of state-sanctioned violence and torture, are long-term at an individual family. And societal and their societal impact. A friend from the Centre for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, Nofundo Muhapi, has referred to how we have wounded leaders, woundedness in society, and therefore this manufactures collective violence in society, collective trauma, which is intergenerational. So, if we're to change this, I think that yes, there. There is a a component that refers to addressing impunity that perpetrators enjoy, but there's also a component that must um, address the, the rights of survivors of this violence, whether it's the people currently in detention, others who may not be in detention that walk around with the wounds. And then we have to address the operational context, which is human rights, politics, economy, and so on and so forth. So it seems to me that there's, yes, what work needs to be done through solidarity platforms, which is highlighting the problem. There's work that needs to be done through multi-stakeholder dialogues, which is defining a collective vision. But there's also work that needs to be done through accountability mechanisms in order to ensure non-recurrence. Power has to be held accountably. But there's work that needs to be done at an individual level, which is modeling the society that we want that's different from the society that we has been imposed on us. And that takes political education and consciousness. It's not just outrage. Outrage in and of itself, though necessary, does not transform society. And hope, it's not just hope, because hope is not a strategy. What we need are the strategies on how to restore our own humanity. I worry a lot about the millions of Zimbabweans in South Africa, Some of them came here with skills, and because they came here uh, and were forced to do jobs other than what they got university degrees for, teacher training, college degrees for, they've been de skilled. So they are stuck in this country doing menial jobs are unable to return home even when Zimbabwe stabilizes because they have lost some of the skills that they had. So there's a whole lot of work that should be done in the diaspora around reskilling Zimbabweans. And that refers also to integration into South African society and a larger question on how xenophobia and other malpractices have re-victimized a lot of the people that came here fleeing a tyranny that quiet diplomacy was refusing to deal with. Uh, And I think there's a role for business, and there's a role for politicians, there's a role for faith leaders, traditional leaders, there's a role for every Zimbabwean and professional. Um, And I don't think we will agree on everything that needs to be done. I think what's required is a minimum platform, minimum platform of action that says the values are clear. We have a constitution that sets our values and the normative frameworks that we must abide by are clear, we're not debating whether there's an African Chart on human and people's rights, we're not debating what is in the Constitution. And the transformative uh, uh, imperatives are clear. We cannot sustain livelihoods under uh, the current economy, uh, and so on and so forth. So it'll take social struggle, but it'll also take solidarity. Uh, but it'll take a whole measure of personal application and collective endeavor by Zimbabweans. And it is there that I think I just need to remind you that Zimbabwe's problem is not one of lack, although people like to define it in, in terms of lack, poverty, and so on. Zimbabwe is very wealthy in many respects, a highly literate population, a lot of natural resources. Zimbabwe's problem is one of access. Sometimes people are just too brilliant to coordinate in order to achieve the transformation that they need that would set the nation back on a, on a proper path. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for allowing me to share some views on both the human rights situation and how it relates to governance uh, and the social and economic crisis in the country, but also just to share that I think that without Zimbabweans uh, getting rid of their, I call it the premier legal pettiness, petty differences and collaborating, uh, the crisis won't go away, uh, not through a hashtag, not through solidarity statements by the ANC. Zimbabweans have to liberate themselves uh, from the sort of cultures that uh, they've been uh, forced into.
0: Thank you. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hama. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.